welcome to the reading of the Des Moines Register for Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. I'm your reader, Jenny Rector. Things are changing very quickly, and Iris wants to make sure we provide our listeners with as much information as we can. In order to do that, we've changed our program schedule completely. This schedule will air statewide on all platforms until further notice. We will also include information about resources in your community during each paper. You'll still hear your Des Moines Register each day at 9 a.m., 6 p.m., and 1 a.m. Please listen closely to the following changes for all other newspapers. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. until noon, seven days a week. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m. seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m. seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And the Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. Recordings of all newspapers will be available on our podcast page. Just go to iowaradioreading.org, click Listen Now, then click Listen to Iris Podcasts. The papers are organized by region, and each paper will be available for seven days. As things continue to change, we will announce schedule changes each hour at 56 minutes past the hour going forward. Keep yourself safe, and thank you for listening. Now let's take a look at today's weather. It looks like a front will remain over the area, keeping it quite cloudy with a shower or thunderstorm in parts of the area today. The storms will move to the east for tonight and bring some clearing. Looks like it's going to be a high today of 75 degrees with a low of 54. And then tomorrow, clouds will be yielding to the sun and it will be a high of 75 degrees with a low of 51. And then on Monday, it looks like storms are going to move back in cooler with a high of 66 degrees and a low of 50. And now let's get to the first article from the front page of our Des Moines Register. And that piece is titled, Business Grants Relieve Frustrate. Some wonder how assistance is being awarded. For many, buying new lingerie during a pandemic-induced economic calamity hasn't been top of mind. So imagine how excited Lila Williams was when she received notification that her longtime Fairfield-based company, Panties.com, was awarded a $10,000 small business relief grant from the state on April 8th. Then imagine how crestfallen she was when, four hours later, she received an email saying the award was made in error. Williams was dumbfounded. The question she eventually brought to Watchdog, can they really do that? Roughly 14,000 Iowa-based businesses ultimately applied for $51.3 million worth of small business relief grants that Governor Kim Reynolds announced in March. Funded and administered by the Iowa Economic Development Authority, the grants range from $5,000 to $25,000 and aim to provide stopgap assistance to businesses impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The filing deadline was March 31st. On Thursday, IEDA Chief Debbie Durham said in Reynolds Daily COVID-19 news conference that the state planned to make additional awards on an ongoing basis. We know that every day that goes by right now is a critical one for so many Iowans, she said. 
Since individual grants have been made public, however, many have questioned how they are being awarded and why so much has been given to so few. The IEDA said it would be triaging applications to get the high-demand money to those who suffered the sharpest declines in revenues. But some business owners have complained the agency wasn't clear if there were any rules for administering the money, and there's been confusion about how workers prioritized applications. In an interview with Watchdog Thursday, State Auditor Rob Sand confirmed his office will review the program after a series of complaints to his office. We think it would be part of our larger annual audit of the state's agency, he said. We'll be looking at the criteria used, the decision-making process involved, and how they were checking applications. Sand said his employees will also be examining what kind of rules or guidelines were used to make sure every applicant was treated equally. When asked if his office was looking into other stimulus programs created to buffer Iowans financially during the pandemic, Sand said, this is the first one that we have received a number of complaints about, so this is the first one we decided to address. Durham did not respond to emails this week seeking an interview regarding how the grants were administered and how the error was made in the Williams case. But in an April 18th email to an East Village business owner who raised concerns about the program, Durham wrote that the response by businesses across the state was so overwhelming she almost shut it down. Durham wrote that the program was not first come, first served, or a lottery. She said every application was reviewed and more than 4,000 applications were screened out initially because of incomplete applications. Each was given a score of 0 to 4 based on revenue losses. The agency required that each applicant provide documentation of financial losses from March 15th to April 15th and told applicants that they would be screened for their civil and criminal court history, bankruptcies, and potential violations of public health, safety, or environmental laws, and for whether they were in good standing with the Iowa Department of Revenue. I did make an executive decision to address those applications that were complete, scored a four, were consumers facing, were enforced to close early under proclamation, she wrote. So yes, you saw many bars, restaurants, plus priority was given to child care facilities. Durham also wrote that many in the hospitality industry would not be able to depend on forgivable loans under the Federal Paycheck Protection Program. And she wrote the agency made an effort to ensure funds were distributed statewide. Durham said she hopes to use more money from the CARES Act passed by Congress to provide more assistance to the applicants who remain. We just need confirmation from the Treasury it will be an accepted expense, she wrote. The IEDA's website shows the 2,691 applicants who received grants from April 7th to April 28th included a wide mix of businesses with 2 to 25 employees, from eyebrow shops and barbers to bridal boutiques and retail clothing shops. But at least 500 restaurants, bars, breweries, and wineries were among the first recipients in Polk County, $25,000 awards went to places such as Ceviche Bar in the East Village, Sakura Sushi in West Des Moines, and Batters Ice Cream on Ingersoll Avenue. The grant winners accounted for about 20% of the 14,000 applicants. In all, applicants sought about three times what was available, $148 million by the March deadline, triggering questions over who rose to the top. Sarah Taylor, the owner of Sarah's Flowers and Gifts in Manchester, 
wrote the register saying she felt the IEDA could have helped more helped many more small businesses than it did. As a sole proprietor, she said, she did not qualify for that grant program, but she said she and several other small business owners had been talking about it and felt the same. Spreading $51 million over all 14,000 applicants would have amounted to $3,642 for each one. Even a meager $3,500 would help many businesses pay the light bill for a few months while closed and would have been much appreciated, Taylor said. I fully understand there were probably a large number of incomplete or ineligible applications, but I can hardly believe that only 10%, not even, of the businesses that applied were deemed eligible. Taylor also said restaurants and bars were at least able to stay open for takeout during the pandemic, and a portion have done well with that business. Other small businesses were forced by the state to shut down completely. IEDA published no rules or procedures on its website governing how the disaster relief program would be administered. When there are none, such programs are still required to follow Chapter 17 of the Iowa Code, the state's Administrative Procedure Act. That act prohibits agencies from administering programs in ways that are unreasonable, arbitrary, capricious, or otherwise beyond the authority delegated to the agency. Williams started her business in New York in 1985, sending gift-wrapped panties of the month to women on behalf of gentlemen buyers who she knew might find it uncomfortable shopping in a retail lingerie store. She moved to Fairfield in 1993, transferring her mail business to her website. Today, she sells sexy panties, fragrances, gifts, and other lingerie with names like Midnight in Monaco and Private Dancer. Most of the lingerie is made overseas in places like China, Vietnam, and Mexico. But in addition to herself, she employs four workers in Iowa and two in California. The disaster relief grant, she said, would have helped her pay bills, cover rent, insurance, and payroll while sales are low. Even if people were buying lingerie, she said, she can't get new inventory because of the pandemic. When Williams told a friend in town how she won and lost the state relief grant, the friend speculated that maybe she lost it because of the nature of Williams' business. Williams contacted Fairfield City Attorney John Morrissey, who contacted the IEDA on her behalf. Eventually, Morrissey got a call back from the agency's spokesperson, Kanan Kappelman, who told him mistakes happen when so many applicants are processed in so little time. Morrissey said he was told then that another business was supposed to receive the grant that was mistakenly given to Williams. Morrissey said he's been a municipal lawyer for decades and always gives the government the benefit of the doubt when people question whether it is acting in good faith. I was amazed they got as much done as they did after the March 31st deadline, he said. But he also empathized with Williams, saying the communication from IEDA failed to convey a clear reason for the error or allow her a way to ask questions or seek some sort of recourse, which is common language with government grants. I guess I'd look at this like, hey, they put $10,000 in your purse and then after supper, they just took it away, Morrissey said. When contacted by the Register this week, Kappelman said the program prioritizes relief for businesses with brick-and-mortar storefronts over online companies. The business in question was received an award notification that was put on hold when it was brought to our attention that it has no storefront in Fairfield, she wrote. 
We're investigating and will notify the business owner when that's complete. This is about due diligence in an emergency stopgap grant program we launched quickly. Williams said she was assured again on Thursday by another agency employee that she is still in the running for a grant when more money becomes available. But if they're going to make a large mistake like awarding a grant to the wrong company, they may make a similar mistake and not put us back in the queue, she said. And our next article is titled, Stores Reopen to Brisk Business, Guidelines in Place to Keep Shops at 50% Capacity. Terry Coons said it felt like the first day of school. The owner of Village Bootery in Winterset, Iowa, got dressed up, did her hair, put on makeup and perfume, and had her husband photograph the occasion. But instead of going to school, Coons went back to work, leaving behind five weeks of staying home in more casual clothes and her first period of unemployment since graduating college more than 40 years ago. Effective Friday, Governor Kim Reynolds eased restrictions on closures of restaurants, retail shops, libraries, gyms, and malls in 77 counties where coronavirus activity has been minimal or declining. Those businesses can operate at only 50% capacity and must adhere to social distancing and sanitation guidelines. That includes Madison County, where the historic Winterset Town Square and Coons Shop is located, and where a handful of other small retailers and restaurants reopen too. I had no idea what to expect today, and I've been pleasantly surprised, said Coons, who has owned Village Bootery for 27 years. I've been very busy. So has the Ben Franklin Variety Store next door to Coons Shop, where owner Dave Trask reported seeing about 100 customers come through by noon. That sort of flow is what Ben Franklin would have on a normal pre-pandemic day, he said. Customers have been purchasing plants, crafts, puzzles, and fabric to make homemade masks. Others have just come in to browse. It just kind of all of a sudden went back to normal traffic, said Trask, who owns the store with his wife, Judy. It's kind of a refreshing change, to be honest. Most businesses in Madison and Story counties, where restrictions were also lifted Friday, reported busy foot traffic on the first day back to in-person shopping and dining. Restaurants have been shuttered, with the exception of carryout service, since March 17th, while most retail stores have been closed since March 26th under coronavirus emergency declarations from Reynolds. Store owners told the Des Moines Register they think customers are itching to get back to some sense of normalcy after staying home for several weeks. At Cafe Diem in Ames, business was steady throughout the morning, and some customers who came to pick up to-go orders stayed for a cup of coffee, said manager Morgan Dennis. One customer stuck around for more than two hours, she said. They can still be isolated because there's room around them to have space for themselves and not feel worried, Dennis said. It's awesome to see customers feel comfortable, and all of the work that I've done is already paying off for them to feel safe here. To adhere to the governor's guidelines, Cafe Diem took down half of its tables and chairs, spreading the remainder so they're at least six feet apart. At West Town Pub in Ames, the salt and pepper shakers and condiments were removed from tables. Servers were clad in masks and gloves, and employees were tasked with sanitizing doorknobs and toilet handles every hour. We're really going to do our due diligence to do our best to keep people safe and healthy, said owner Brian Kinnear, who reported about 60 diners during the lunch rush. At the Made Right Sandwich Shop in Norwalk, stuffed animals sat in every other booth to block them off from guests. Robert and Anna Corita 
Agin, I'm sorry, it's A-G-U-I-N-I-G-A, sat near the back of the restaurant waiting for their lunch, a tenderloin for him, and a hot roast beef sandwich for her. They said they felt comfortable dining indoors. I like the way they have laid it out for this virus. Not a lot of people. It's a very clean place, they said. There was a stream of a steady stream of customers, many of whom picked up orders to go, but assistant manager Deb Mercer said business was significantly slower than lunch rushes before the pandemic. This is really still slow for Fridays because we do the specials that we have, like the hot beef today, Mercer said. It's usually a really popular day. Businesses that open Friday emphasize their increased sanitary measures. They also know how many customers can be inside at one time to adhere to the state's 50% capacity rule. Those in Madison County, which are frequently visited by tourists coming to see the famed covered bridges, say they're worried an influx of customers from neighboring Polk and Dallas counties may make those orders difficult to enforce. Both Dallas and Polk are included in the 22 counties that have not had business restrictions lifted under the governor's order. All we can do is do our best and follow the guidelines, said Heather Riley, executive director of the Madison County Chamber of Commerce. Everyone wants to be reopened for business, but be cautious and smart. Not every business that was allowed to open Friday actually did. Few public libraries in central Iowa opened. In Indianola, library employees began curbside pickup Friday and will reevaluate opening the doors to the public in a few weeks. We just want to proceed cautiously, said library director Michelle Patrick. And many churches, which as houses of worship are allowed to open anywhere in the state without county-based restrictions, will continue to do online services for the time being. In Ames, St. Cecilia Catholic Church, Stonebrook Community Church, and Ames Jewish Congregation each decided not to reopen Friday. In my personal opinion, yes, it is too early to reopen things because, again, things that I read and hear from health experts say that if we reopen too soon and too fast, we could get another wave of the virus coming through, said Father Jim Sakura, pastor of St. Cecilia. Everyone's health is my top priority. Likewise, Iowa's four Catholic dioceses, Davenport, Des Moines, Dubuque, and Sioux City, have extended the suspension of Sunday Masses, and leaders from more than a dozen Christian denominations have called on Iowans to refrain from in-person religious gatherings. As some businesses opened Friday, the Iowa Department of Public Health reported 740 new cases of COVID-19, the respiratory illness caused by the coronavirus. It was the largest jump in new cases since Reynolds announced the first confirmed case in early March. Nearly 70% of the cases were in Blackhawk, Dallas, Polk, and Woodbury counties. Reynolds said she attributed the rise in cases to a backlog in data given an increase in testing across the state. She said the weekend's numbers are also expected to be high. Reynolds, a Republican, commended businesses that decided to reopen Friday while also acknowledging those who weren't ready. Businesses are making the decisions based on what they feel they are ready to do, she said at her news conference Friday. People are being responsible. They want to make sure that they are protecting their workers and the individuals that are coming into their establishments, as well as making sure that they're protecting the community. So if we continue to all work together and really be mindful and thoughtful about how we move through this next phase of COVID-19, then we're going to continue, I believe, to continue in a very responsible manner 
continue to open things up in the state of Iowa. And our next article is titled, Test Iowa COVID-19 Results Delayed. Healthcare Workers Still Waiting to Hear Outcome. COVID-19 results from Governor Kim Reynolds' first Test Iowa site are delayed, according to healthcare workers who say they were tested at the program's launch site nearly a week ago and still don't know if they have the respiratory illness. Reynolds acknowledged the delay, attributing it to a backlog in the data entry process that is part of the state's system for reporting COVID-19 cases. For Iowans who are still waiting for their results, we are sorry for the delay, she said at a news conference Friday, but you will receive your results this weekend. The healthcare workers told the register during separate interviews that they were swabbed for the respiratory illness at a parking lot in the Iowa Event Center on April 25th. Each was told by email afterward that their test results from the drive through testing would be available within three business days. But on Friday, five business days later and nearly one week after being tested, both said they are still waiting for their results. Neither received more information about the delay until Reynolds, until Reynolds' public remarks at her daily news conference. The register spoke to the workers on the condition of anonymity because they either fear retribution from their employers or they're concerned about worrying people they interact with at work. I know there has to be patience when you're rolling out a new program on a large scale, said one Des Moines area nurse who was tested last Saturday. But I'm frustrated as a nurse because for this to work from an infection control perspective, it has to be timely. Reynolds has said in recent days that the State Hygienic Laboratory in Coralville is double-checking the accuracy of the Test Iowa testing after Utah health professionals raised questions about the accuracy of the results there. The same company that runs Utah's testing effort runs Iowa's. I want to assure Iowans this is a short-term issue while the lab is transitioning to accommodate not only a higher volume of tests on an ongoing basis, but as they work through the validation of the test Iowa process, she said on Friday. As with any new test, validation is a normal process of that process, and it takes time, and this is causing some delay in the test Iowa results. The number of COVID-19 cases in Iowa continues to climb. The Iowa Department of Public Health announced on Friday that 739 more people in Iowa have tested positive for COVID-19, the largest single-day increase so far. More than 7,800 people statewide have tested positive for the illness as of Friday. Other surrounding states like Wisconsin and Illinois have reported large increases in COVID-19 cases in recent days as testing expands in those areas. Reynolds cautioned that due to the large number of tests conducted recently, we, we, do, we do anticipate the overall numbers that will be reported this weekend. They may be higher than usual. Reynolds has argued that the increased testing is one of the reasons she began to reopen parts of Iowa's economy amid the pandemic. On Friday, some businesses in 77 of Iowa's 99 counties reopened with mitigation rules in place. Michelle Pintella, I'm sorry, Michael Pintella, director of the state lab, said through a spokesman on Friday that, he, that the volume of COVID-19 testing at the lab has grown significantly over the last month as testing was expanded. The lab's work also includes blood-based testing aimed at identifying whether people have been exposed to the virus. Pentella said the lab has ongoing work to validate the Test Iowa equipment, which he described as a routine part of bringing new equipment online and will complete that process as soon as possible.
A healthcare worker and pharmacy student who works at a pharmacy in the Des Moines area said she is not showing symptoms of the virus as of Friday and doesn't su suspect she has COVID-19. But she wants to know if she has it because she lives with someone who could be highly susceptible to the virus. The pharmacy student was also who was also tested for the virus last Saturday noted that some healthcare workers and carriers of the virus are not showing symptoms. If we're getting results a week or more out, I'm wondering how many people actually have tested positive and have exposed extra people to it by now, she said. Both healthcare workers shared documentation with the register that shows their individual communication with Test Iowa organizers and the organizers' commitment to a quick turnaround on test results. Reynolds made the same promise on April 21st, the day she announced the program through a public-private partnership with Utah-based companies. The program's organizers, which secured a $26 million no-bid contract with the state, have committed to eventually test up to 3,000 Iowans per day through the initiative. Individuals are swabbed, samples are sent to a lab, and the results are returned electronically within 48 to 72 hours, Reynolds said at a news conference at the time. The pharmacy student watched Reynolds' news conference that day. After she completed a health assessment online that, showed, that allowed her to schedule a test, she was also told in an email, you should have test results approximately 72 hours after you have been tested. After her test on Saturday, she received another email that changed the timeline to three business days, which further extended her wait time. It was a little contradictory, the pharmacy student said. At this point, she considers the results delayed either way. I just want to know if I'm the only one that has a problem, she said. The scope of the backlog is unclear. Reynolds said that more than 870 people had been tested through the Test Iowa program as of Wednesday. That same day, a Test Iowa site opened in Waterloo. There are plans for additional sites in the next few days, including a site on Monday in Woodbury County. More than 240 people were scheduled to be tested during the two-day weekend launch of the Des Moines Test Iowa site, according to Reynolds staff. Pat Garrett, a, spokesperson, a spokesman for Reynolds, declined to specify how many Test Iowa results are still pending or other details about results generated from other testing days. Garrett would only confirm, we have reported the results of some Test Iowa tests. And our next article is titled, Firefighters Want Virus Care Covered. The Iowa Professional Firefighters Union is calling on Governor Kim Reynolds to issue guidance requiring cities to cover medical costs for emergency first responders who contract the coronavirus. We obviously are required to respond in emergencies and, re and interact with people, Union President Doug Nays told the Des Moines Register. And even with all the precautions that we can take, our duties put us in a position where we're at higher risk. The union represents more than 1,500 firefighters and emergency service providers across Iowa. Nays, who is a firefighter in Ames, said about 50 of the union's members have been tested for COVID-19. Of those, four tested positive. Some local governments presume that first responders who contract the disease did so on the job, he said. That means the illness gets treated as a line-of-duty injury and that local governments are responsible for the associated medical costs. But some local governments are not making that presumption, Nays said, and it's created a patchwork approach across the state. 
Most municipalities are treating their people well, and they want to do the right thing by them, Nays said. But they're not all doing it the same, and we're looking for some consistency across the state. If you're a firefighter in Des Moines, you should be treated the same as a firefighter in Mason City. He said his organization has been working with the governor's office and the Iowa League of Cities since March 20th, asking them to issue guidelines to cities that all coronavirus cases should be presumed to have been acquired on the job, but so far they have not done so. I don't claim to be a scientist or medical professional, but I don't foresee this going away anytime soon, Nays said. And I fear with the relaxation of some of the measures she's taken, we are going to be more and more exposed as time goes on. The governor's office and the Iowa League of Cities did not immediately return a request for comment. And our next article is titled, Christian Speaker Chosen to Address Church Reopenings. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds chose a leader from a conservative Christian group as the sole speaker from the public at her Friday news conference to discuss lifted restrictions on religious gatherings. Greg Baker, executive vice president of the conservative Christian group The Family Leader, highlighted the work of many Christian churches across the state that have been making face masks, working with food banks, and distributing food to those in need. He did not mention the work of any non-Christian religion. We are seeing the attitude of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here as ambassadors, Baker said during Reynolds' daily news conference on the coronavirus in Iowa. And Jesus came to not be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. On Monday, Reynolds lifted statewide restrictions on spiritual and religious gatherings that have been in place since March 17th amid the spread of the coronavirus. Religious groups must follow social distancing guidelines and sanitize gathering spaces. The selection of a family leader representative and his remarks drew immediate criticism from some on social media, some of whom referred to the family leader's political stances on abortion and LGBTQ rights. This is a crisis at IA governor, not a political opportunity, the the Iowa Democratic Party tweeted. Iowans should hear from experts, not political allies. Waterloo Ward 2 Councilman Jonathan Greeter tweeted, How is this proselytizing during the governor's press conference not a violation of church and state? Connie Ryan, executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, said in a statement that the group was disappointed in Reynolds' choice to promote one religious belief above all others. Once again, Kim Reynolds misused her elected office to promote one religion, one narrow segment of that religion at that, Ryan said. As the top elected official in our state, the governor must represent all Iowans and not promote one religion over all others. Shane Vanderhart, editor of the conservative Christian blog Caffeinated Thoughts, defended the governor on Twitter, saying that Baker is knowledgeable on what churches around the state are doing. This is stupid, he said, of the Iowa Democratic Party's tweet. He spoke about what churches are doing in light of COVID-19 for the first weekend churches get to hold in-person services. In this regard, Greg Baker of The Family Leader is an expert. Reynolds spokesman Pat Garrett said in an email after the news conference that the governor wanted to share the positive stories of what churches are doing. Governor Reynolds wanted to highlight the incredible work being done by churches across Iowa and how their members are engaged and supporting their communities during this time, as well as their plans to begin opening for services, Garrett said. 
Republican Party of Iowa spokesman Aaron Britt said in a statement that the governor is not politicizing the pandemic. She continues to send a strong message of unity and emphasizes bringing Iowans together while Democrats criticize every move to divide and polarize this state, he said. He added that Reynolds will continue to share positive stories received from Iowans at the daily news conferences. As of Friday, Reynolds is lifting restrictions on religious gatherings in all 99 counties, while also allowing restaurants and some retail business in 77 of Iowa's counties to reopen at half capacity. Reynolds and Iowa Department of Public Health Deputy Director Sarah Reisetter reiterated guidance for churches looking to reopen. Reisetter reiterated the state's guidance for churches, which includes following social distancing guidelines and increased hygiene practices. She said Friday that the high-risk Iowans, that high-risk Iowans should continue to participate in services remotely and that all congregants should consider wearing face coverings such as a cloth face mask. If you do choose to attend a worship service this weekend, please continue to do all the things that public health has been asking of Iowans, Reisetter said. Wedding and funeral ceremonies will also be allowed, although wedding and funeral receptions will not. Although houses of worship have the freedom to reopen in Iowa, many are continuing to take it slow, and several have publicly announced they will continue online services until they believe it is safe. Reynolds noted that in a way not specific to one religion, pastors, priests, rabbis, and other religious leaders are now determining how best to move forward to provide their members with spiritual guidance during this challenging time, the governor said. Iowa's four Catholic dioceses have extended the suspension of Sunday Masses, citing the continued danger of the disease. Iowa United Methodist, Iowa United Methodist Church Bishop Lori Haller encouraged her denomination to not hold in-person services until June 1st. West Des Moines-based Lutheran Church of Hope, which Reynolds attends, has also said it will hold services online. The church has locations in Ames, Ankeny, Des Moines, Grimes, Waukee, and West Des Moines. On Tuesday, the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa issued a statement calling on congregations and members to stay at home. And our next article is titled, Company Still Trying to Export Water. Firm Seeks Permit to Sell to Drought Rack States. Pattison Sand Company, the Northeast Iowa mining company that has proposed sending millions of gallons of water from Iowa to drought-stricken western states, hopes its third attempt at getting state approval is a charm. In an April 22nd permit request, Pattison owner Kyle Pattison told the Iowa Department of Natural Resources that the company wants to drill a well that can be used to pump 448.8 millions of gallons of water each year for export to cities and states in the western U.S. Pattison, which mines silica sand outside Clayton for use in oil and gas fracking, already has state approval to pump 2.1 billion gallons from its wells and the Mississippi River. Another well can be added to help it supply the water to the western states without exceeding the permit's limitations, the company said in the new application. Pattison has said it wants to sell Iowa water to an Oregon company called WaterTrain, potentially sending it to users in New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Arizona, and Utah. 
WaterTrain describes itself as a bottled water delivery service that hauls 26,000 gallons per rail tank car to areas suffering from water shortages. The company requested that the Iowa DNR waive its requirement to show where the water would go and how it would be used. It's been an ongoing point of contention between the state and the mining company. The state has questioned whether exporting Iowa's water is a beneficial use of an Iowa resource. In February, the Iowa DNR told Pattison it planned to reject its first permit request to export 2 billion gallons of water annually because, <clears throat> because removing such a large volume of water permanently from the basin does not meet the statutory and regulatory permitting requirements. Specifically, this scheme does not meet the legal standard that Iowa's public water be put to beneficial use in the interest of the people, the agency told Pattison. Pattison submitted a second proposal in late February, proposing to export about 34 million gallons annually. The state told Pattison April 6 it would need to apply for a new water use. The company, which employs about 300 people, said in its new permit it's aggressively looking for new markets to put employees back to work after oil prices plunged due to the reduced travel with the spread of COVID-19. In a letter to Governor Kim Reynolds and Iowa DNR Director Kayla Lyon, a Pattison attorney said the state should put falsehoods and misunderstandings aside and look at the facts so the company can develop this unique renewable resource that is currently not being put to any productive use. James Prey, an environmental attorney at Brown Winnick in Des Moines, told Reynolds and Lyon that Pattison's plan to pull water from the Jordan Aquifer wouldn't affect levels elsewhere in the basin. The aquifer, which runs diagonally across Iowa from northeast to southwest, sits near the surface in the northeastern corner of the state, close to Clayton, and flows about 2,500 feet underground in southwest Iowa. The company said the state restrictions that limit how much water Iowa cities and businesses withdraw from the Jordan Aquifer do not apply to Pattison's sand location because the aquifer is constantly being recharged. In fact, if not used, this resource is wasted as it moves into the Mississippi, Prey wrote. Pattison said the exported water could be dumped into a man-made or natural reservoir or river channel and then drawn upon as needed and processed further as needed. Next up, our story is titled Bikes for Essential Workers Stolen from Nonprofit. More than a dozen donated bikes were stolen Wednesday night from a Des Moines nonprofit which is donating 100 bikes to essential workers. Des Moines Street Collective, a nonprofit transportation advocacy group, is repairing and is repairing 100 donated bikes and giving them to essential workers because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not all of the 15 stolen adult bikes were going to be given to essential workers, said spokesman Mike Armstrong. Instead, some were going to be donated, while others were going to be sold with the proceeds benefiting bike donation and other programs. The stolen bikes had a total value of $3,500, Armstrong said. Because of the COVID-19 outbreak, the Street Collective placed donated bikes in a box truck backed up to its bike shop at 506 East 6th Street for three days before they were removed and fixed, Armstrong said. On Wednesday night, the truck was broken into and the bikes inside were stolen, he said. 
The collective, the, sorry, the street collective started its program for essential workers to help Des Moines residents without cars get around during the pandemic. The group is also working with high V and local hospitals to provide essential workers with opportunities to ride local bike shares to ride local bike share bikes for free. So far, the Street Collective donated 10 bikes to the YMCA's supportive housing campus and 10 bikes to Orchard Place, a Des Moines nonprofit providing children's mental health services, Armstrong said. Another four bikes were given to the Iowa Homeless Youth Center, Armstrong said. Currently, the group has no more bikes to give away because of the theft. Community members were caught off guard by the news of the theft. Drew Kelso serves as president of the Highland Park Neighborhood Association, which typically donates about 50 children's bikes to the collective each year to the street collective. This group is great, and it's just a shame to see somebody do this, Kelso said. Since the bikes were stolen, the street collective has seen support from other groups and community members flood in, Armstrong said. Several other people and groups offered to donate bikes after word got out. That was certainly not the news we hoped for when we got up and went to the shop, Armstrong said. But even in this difficult period, we're even more appreciative of getting more bikes. The Des Moines Police Department was notified of the theft, Armstrong said. Des Moines Police Sergeant Paul Parizic did not identify a suspect, but said at least seven of the bikes were recovered nearby. And our next article is titled, Court Upholds Dismissal of Lawsuit Over Reynolds Flight. The Iowa Supreme Court on Friday upheld the dismissal of a lawsuit filed by a Des Moines attorney who challenged a 2017 flight that Governor Kim Reynolds and her family took on a private jet to a football game in Memphis, Tennessee. Gary Dickey filed a complaint with the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board in September 2018, alleging the $2,880 claimed for four seats on the private jet in campaign disclosure documents underestimated the flight's value by thousands of dollars. The plane was owned by a company that has contracts with the state. Dave North, the company's CEO and a major campaign donor of Reynolds, paid for the flight. The board dismissed his complaint, saying the estimate was reasonable. Dickey appealed and a district court judge in December 2018 dismissed his challenge, saying he lacked standing to sue because he wasn't injured by the governor's filing, even if it wasn't accurate. Dickey claims that Iowa campaign finance laws guarantee citizens accurate information and the court should establish a citizen's right to challenge reports when they're false. All but one of the, of the justices considering the case, three of them Reynolds appointees, upheld the, the dismissal. Courts exist to hear claims brought by injured parties. Dickey is not injured, the court said. A spokesman for Reynolds didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. Justice Brent Appel, the only remaining Democratic appointee on the court, disagreed with the majority. He wrote that the state law on public disclosure of campaign contributions is broad enough to allow Dickey to pursue the right to force accurate public disclosure of, of campaign donation amounts. Dickey said it's undisputed that Reynolds underreported the jet contribution and the Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board failed to hold her accountable. The legislature needs to allow individuals to seek relief in the courts when the board fails to act or else do away with campaign disclosure requirements altogether, he said. 
Reynolds attended the Liberty Bowl with her husband and adult children to watch Iowa State play Memphis. Well, it looks like we have run out of front page articles, and I don't want to encroach on anything that will be read in the next hour, so I'm going to move to the Associated Press website and read a few stories from Iowa, um, and I hope you haven't heard these before, but we will just continue for the next few minutes doing that. And the first article is Spirit Flight Diverted to Des Moines After Fight on Board. A Spirit Airlines flight was forced to land in Des Moines early Thursday after a fight on board that police said began when a passenger became upset about people being too loud while he was trying to sleep. The flight from Los Angeles to Detroit was on the ground at Des Moines International Airport for about two hours before it took off again, KETV reported. One passenger was taken off the plane but was not arrested, said Des Moines Police Sergeant Paul Parizic. It appears that he was the victim of the assault, but initiated the dispute on the flight, Parizic said. It started because he wanted to sleep, and he protested two other people, including a flight attendant, talking too loudly. Parizic said Des Moines police did not have jurisdiction in the case because the flight occurred over Nebraska. The passenger has not been identified, and the investigation into the altercation is continuing. And the next article is titled, Des Moines Police, Worker Killed in Construction Site Crash. A worker has been killed in a construction zone crash in the northern part of Des Moines and a driver charged in the crash, police reported. Police said in a news report that the crash happened around 11.30 a.m. Monday when first responders were called to the site. Arriving officers found that a car had lost control, jumped a curb, and hit Jorge Lopez Gillen, 41, of Des Moines, who was working within a construction site at the time. Gillen was taken to an area hospital where he died of his injuries. Police cited the driver, Eugene Davis, 72, of Des Moines, for driving on a suspended license and having no insurance, misdemeanor, vehicular homicide, and failure to maintain control. Davis was released on the citations with orders to appear in court on the charges. A public telephone listing for Davis could not be found on Wednesday. And our next article is titled, NASA Selects Firms for Missions to the Moon. NASA on Thursday announced the three companies selected to design and build human landing systems as part of the agency's Artemis program, a critical step toward the goal of putting boots back on the lunar surface by 2024. Blue Origin, Dianetics, and SpaceX were all selected for contracts totaling $967 million over a 10-month period. Blue Origin's proposal, called National Team, includes Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper as supporting companies. After design reviews and testing, one will eventually be selected to put the first NASA crew, a man and a woman, on the moon. Blue Origin of Kent, Washington, is developing the Integrated Lander Vehicle, a three-stage lander capable of launching on its New Glenn rocket and United Launch Alliance Vulcan Centaur rocket. The company will receive $579 million of the contract. I know I speak for many on our team when I say going to the moon is why we got into this business, Blue Origin CEO Bob Smith said. We're all very fortunate to be standing on the shoulders of Apollo. 
Dianetics of Huntsville, Alabama, is working on the Dianetics Human Landing System, or DHLS, which is a single-structure spacecraft that provides ascent and descent capabilities for the crew. It's being, desi- it's being designed to launch on ULA's Vulcan rocket. Dianetics was awarded $253 million. Ken Doring, a vice president at Dianetics, said her company is excited about enabling a long-term commercial lunar economy. SpaceX of Hawthorne, California, will use Starship, its next-generation launch vehicle. Starship is a fully integrated spacecraft that will fly on the company's super-heavy booster. Prototypes are already underway in Texas, and the company flew a short hop last year. SpaceX was awarded $135 million. The three companies and their partners are expected to refine and test their lander concepts through the base period, which ends February 2022. Sorry, which ends in February 2021. NASA said it. NASA said it intends to purchase service on one or more of the systems after that time frame. And our next article is titled "Misery of Italy's Migrants Grown Not from Virus But Lockdown." They are known as the Invisibles, undocumented African migrants who, even before the coronavirus outbreak, plunged Italy into crisis, barely scraped by as day laborers, prostitutes, freelance hairdressers, and seasonal farmhands. Locked down for two months in crumbling apartments in a mob-infiltrated town north of Naples, their hand-to-mouth existence has grown even more precarious with no work, no food, and no hope. Italy is preparing to reopen some business and industry on Monday in a preliminary easing of its virus shutdown, but there is no indication that the invisibles of Castel Volturno will get back to work anytime soon and no evidence that the, governor, that the government's social nets will ease their misery. I need help. Help me. For my children, for my husband, I need help said a tearful Mary Sardo, Mary Sardo Ofori, a Nigerian hairdresser and mother of three, who has been holed up in her overcrowded apartment block. She ran out of milk for her six-month-old and is getting by on handouts from a friend. A patchwork team of volunteers, medics, a priest, a cultural mediator, and local city hall officials are trying to make sure the invisibles aren't forgotten entirely, delivering groceries daily to their choked apartments and trying to provide health care, but the need is outstripping the resources. There is an emergency within the COVID emergency, which is a social emergency, said Sergio Seriano, who runs a health clinic in town. We knew this was going to happen, and we were waiting for it from the beginning. The virus struck hardest in Italy's prosperous industrial north, where the first homegrown case was registered on February 21st and where most of the infected and 27,000 dead were recorded. The bulk of the government's attention and response focused on reinforcing the healthcare system there to withstand the onslaught of tens of thousands sick. Castel Volturno is another world entirely, a 27-kilometer or 17-mile strip of land running along the sea north of Naples that is controlled by the Camorra Organized Crime Syndicate. Here, there have been only about a dozen COVID cases and none among the migrants. 
But the Castelvolturno has other problems that the COVID crisis has exacerbated. Known as Terra di Fucci, or Land of Fires, Castelvolturno and surrounding areas have unusually high cancer rates, blamed on the illegal dumping and burning of toxic waste that have polluted the air, sea, and underground wells. Here, the mob runs drugs and waste disposal, and officials have warned the clans are primed to exploit the economic misery that the virus shutdowns have caused. It is also here that the invisibles have settled over the years, many after crossing the Mediterranean from Libya in smugglers' boats, hoping for a better life. No one knows their numbers for certain, but estimates run as high as 600,000 nationally. In Castel Volturno, a city with an official population of around 26,000, there are estimates of 10,000 to 20,000. The men get by on day jobs picking tomatoes, lemons, or oranges, or in construction where they earn 25 euros or $28 US per day. The women sell their bodies or, if they are lucky, work as freelance hairstylists or selling trinkets and cigarette lighters on the street. In normal times, the men gather at 4 a.m. at the roundabouts that dot the Via Domenziana main drag, waiting for trucks to pick them up and take them to farms or construction sites. But since the lockdown, even that illegal off-the-book system known as the Capolorado has ground to a halt. The migrants, who already were living precariously without official residency or work permits, now can't pay their rent or buy food. We don't have electricity, we don't have water, we don't have documents, said Jimmy Donko, a 43-year-old Ghanaian migrant who lives with 46 Nigerian and Ghanaian men in a dark, run-down house where filthy dishes fill the kitchen sink and old blankets serve as curtains over broken windows. To bathe, wash, and flush the toilet, he and his roommates walk 300 meters with buckets to a fountain and back. The level of desperation is apparent everywhere. With no electricity or refrigeration, food spoils quickly and is cooked immediately. On a recent day, cooked fish and goat heads were left out on shelves. Outside, chicken was being cooked on a makeshift stove made from old mattress springs. A consortium of, a consortium of unions and nonprofit organizations has called for a general amnesty to legalize undocumented migrants. Government ministers have vowed to help even those in the black market economy survive the emergency. A proposed law would legalize migrant farmer or legalize migrant farm workers for the strawberry, peach, and melon harvests. Given that Italy's legal seasonal farm hands have been kept at home in Eastern Europe because of virus travel restrictions, but no proposals have made it into law. And there is fierce opposition nationwide and in tiny Castel Volturno to any moves to legalize the African workforce currently here. We are talking about 20,000 illegal immigrants in a population of 26,000 inhabitants. That makes it almost equal one foreigner for one Italian, said Mayor Luigi Petrella of the right-wing anti-migrant Brothers of Italy party. It seems absurd to propose something like that. That said, City Hall is working to feed the masses, teaming to feed the masses, teaming up with the local Centro Fernandez Refugee Center to bring bags of food each day to the locked down out of work migrants. 
The Reverend Danielle Moschetti, a former missionary in Nairobi, Kenya, now delivers groceries to the poor in his homeland. It was different when I was in Nairobi, he said, during a break in his grocery rounds. There was poverty, but it was more human. Here, there is something diabolical about all of this, something evil in how all these people are treated. And our final article before the break is, Air travel wanes, but bodies still fly to Israel for burial. Air travel to Israel has come to a near standstill standstill due to coronavirus restrictions, but one type of voyage still endures, the final journey of Jews wishing to be buried in Israel. For centuries, Jews have sought to be interred in the Holy Land, going to great lengths to secure their final resting place in the land of their biblical forefathers. Today, not even a once-in-a-century pandemic is halting this ancient last wish. The land of Israel is a very special place for Jewish people to be buried, said Rabbi Michael Fletcher, who facilitates purchases of burial plots in Israel for Jews from abroad. The flights have been reduced heavily, but there are cargo flights, so it may take a bit longer, but we are getting people coming in. Despite the challenges presented by the coronavirus, families, the aviation industry, and health workers are finding ways to keep the deceased flying in, chartering private planes, adding cargo flights, and striking deals with handling companies. Israel's foreign ministry says 300 bodies, including many COVID-19 victims, have been flown in for burial since February. During that time, Israel's typically bustling Ben-Gurion International Airport has become a ghost town with only a few hundred passengers arriving on a handful of flights each week. Jews have long aspired to be buried in the Holy Land. The biblical forefather Jacob and his son both requested to be buried in the Promised Land after having died in Egypt. Some Jews believe that being buried in the Holy Land grants atonement for sins or will make resurrection easier when the Messiah comes. Bringing in bodies is complex and costly, even under ordinary circumstances. Purchasing a plot can cost anywhere from a few thousand to tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the location. Many choose to spend hefty sums for a prime spot in Jerusalem's Mount of Olives Cemetery, which overlooks the storied Old City and its important Jewish sites. Additional costs include flights and transportation from the airport to the cemetery. Last month, Dan Lesham's father, Amnon, died from the coronavirus in Belgium, his home for the last 20 years. Bureaucracy and high costs were not a deterrent to bringing his father for burial in Israel, where Lesham lives. His last wish was to be buried in Israel, said Lesham, who streamed the funeral to relatives and friends abroad. It was clear that we must bring him. And that does it for the first hour of the Register on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Up next, we'll give a shout out to all our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today. I'm your reader, Jenny Rector. Thanks for listening.